Welcome back to our study of the book of Philippians. In this session, we are going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Philippians 1, 1 through 11 is Paul's introduction to the entire letter. It includes his greetings to the church in Philippi, as well as his opening thanksgiving and prayer for them. Let's jump into the opening greeting, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. And in typical fashion, following the conventions of his day, um, Paul has a greeting that very much looks like the kind of greeting he would have been taught when he was in grammar school if they had such a thing for him, right? We know the way we write letters, it goes, dear so-and-so, body of the letter, and then sign off. Well, for uh, Greco-Roman letters of Paul's day, the uh, introduction greeting consisted of really three key components. The sender, the recipient, and then the specific greeting, all right? And so here in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, let me read it to you and listen for those three parts. Here's how the book of Philippians begins. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, there is Paul's greeting to the church at Philippi, his opening to the letter. So, the senders are Paul and Timothy. And even though it specifies Paul and Timothy, it's probably because Timothy was with Paul when this church was started. Timothy had a connection with this church. But it's clear as we read the entire letter that Paul really is the primary sender, the focal sender of this letter. So much so that the word I, me, my, right, those personal references from Paul show up over 50 times in this letter. So Paul and Timothy are the senders, but Paul really is the primary one. Timothy is, ta is attached on because of his connection to the church at Philippi and his connection to Paul's ministry. And Paul describes he and Timothy as part of this greeting as bondservants of Christ Jesus. And this particular word, doulos in Greek, which means bondservant, servant, slave, Paul only uses in his greeting here and in Romans and Titus. And in Romans and Titus, he also includes his title as apostle, but not here. Here, he leaves it simply as bondservant. There's no question about his authority. There's no issues with his apostleship here in Philippi. Um, but there are some apparent issues in the letter with humility. And so Paul models the kind of humility he wants, the self-understanding. says, look, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And so Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, that's the sender. Who are the recipients? Well, the recipients, as Paul describes them here, are to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. So those are who the letter is addressed to. So notice what he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Who are the saints? Well, the word saint literally means holy one. It comes from the same root word as the word holy or holiness, and it refers to people that are holy. Now, we need to understand what, what holy or holiness means. We often think of that in a purely moral or ethical sense, meaning uh, you're a super holy person, right? You always do holy things. But the basic idea of the word holy is to be set apart, uh, to be other than or different than. So God being holy, certainly he is moral and certainly he is pure, but he is also set apart from us. He's different than us. He's other than us. And um, 
God's people are described as holy ones or holy people because we're set apart for God. We belong to him. We were set apart for his purposes and hence the idea of being holy ones. And so it refers more to the status of God's people than the behavior of God's people, although their status and their behavior is meant to match. And so the reason for the appeal to be holy is because we've been set apart as God's holy people. And so our behavior is to match our status. But here it refers to the status of God's people. To all the saints in Christ Jesus refers to God's holy people, all of them. And in the New Testament, the word saint in these kind of contexts, is always used in the plural. Notice, to all the saints. And the reason for that is because it refers to God's people as a collective. It's an Old Testament belonging term that says, you are God's holy people set apart for him and for his purposes in the world. And so, to all the saints doesn't refer to a super holy dead guy who had a statue made out of him. It refers to you and me as God's holy people. It refers to the church, God's people, who are in the city of Philippi. And we talked about where Philippi is in the background session. And so be sure you've listened to that if you want to know more about the city of Philippi, because it's really important understanding this letter. So to all the saints in Christ Jesus, they're God's holy people because they're in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. The word overseer and Older translations was translated bishop. It means literally overseer, one who watches over, who supervises, who keeps an eye on things. And it's used interchangeably in the New Testament with the word elder. And even it's used in Acts 21 in, uh, interchangeably with the idea of to shepherd uh, or to pastor. And so the overseers are the elders and pastors of the church. And deacons, which... Uh, refers to servants, assistants, those who who have tasks that they have to carry out on behalf of God's people. Why are the overseers and the deacons included in this introduction and greeting? We don't really know. They're never particularly addressed elsewhere in the letter, but for some reason Paul felt uh, called to specify them here in the introduction and greeting. So the recipients are God's holy people, the church in Philippi, including the leaders, the overseers and the deacons, and then the greetings. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's Paul's standard greeting, very common greeting in a lot of his letters, but it's really an adaptation of the standard Greek and the standard Hebrew or Jewish greeting. In Greek, the, you would write a letter, and after you give the recipients, you would say, Greetings. And the word for greetings is chirine, but the word for grace is charis. Do you hear how they're similar? Chirine. Charis. And so instead of just saying greetings, Paul took the word chiron and says it sounds like grace, and grace is such an important concept to our self-understanding as God's people. So he just uh, threw away the word chiron, greetings, replaced it with the word charis, and says grace to you, more of God's grace, more of God's favor. And that's the idea of grace, is God's undeserved kindness, his favor upon you. So grace to you and peace. And the standard Hebrew or Jewish greeting was shalom, which means peace, blessing, wholeness from God. And so grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there you have it, Paul's greeting to the church here in Philippi as he opens the letter of Philippians. Now what follows then is in verses 3 through 11 is Paul's opening thanksgiving and opening prayer. 
And again, as was customary in Greek and Roman letters of the day, there often was some sort of prayer or well-wish for the recipients of the letter at this point in the letter. Not always, but oftentimes a, a standard letter would have a little uh, blessings to you, my friend, right? May all be well with you. I wish for you good health and prosperity. It would have something like that. So Paul adapts that into really a a prayer of thanks, as well as a prayer for God to do some work on their behalf. And so here we have Paul's prayer of thanks and prayer for the, the Philippian church. And so his thanksgiving shows up in verses 3 through 8, and his prayer for them shows up in verses 9 through 11. Um, let's begin with his thanksgiving. He says this in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so there's his initial prayer of thanksgiving. Notice what he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Now, let's make sure we get the sense of what he's saying. He's not saying, man, I'm always praying for you every day, every moment of every day. That's not quite what he's saying. He's saying, every time you come to mind, in all my remembrance of you, every time I think of you, every time I call you to mind, every time I remember you, I do so with thanksgiving. And, and in that moment when I remember you, I thank God for you. And he says, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. When I do so, when I remember you and I pray for you, man, it fills my heart with joy every time I think about you. And so there's this warmth, this depth of affection that is kind of really in this relationship between Paul and the Philippian church because of his relationship with them and their, their love and relationship and affection towards him. And so it leads him to thank God for them and to pray joyfully for them every time he remembers them. Now, why is he so thankful? Well, listen to what he says in verse 5. He says, um, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And so he is thankful for them because they, of their participation in the gospel. And that word participation comes from uh, the koinos, koinonia word family, which means to partake in, to share in, to be partners in. And so they have participated in the gospel from the first day until now. And in the context of uh, the Philippian letter in the context of Paul's relationship with the church at Philippi, their participation refers to a tangible, practical support of Paul's gospel ministry. And he says their participation has been the case from the first day until now, until the present time for him. And if you go back and you read Acts chapter 16, which tells of the first day, like when the church got started, you'll see what he means. The reception he received, uh, how he was welcomed into Lydia's house, and he and his team were invited to stay with her, and he, he tried to refuse. And the reason he tried to refuse is because Paul had a pretty much standard operating policy of um, not not really receiving practical support at the very beginning because he didn't want to be accused of taking people's money and running because he never knew how long he would be in town. Once persecution kind of flared up, it was wiser for him to leave. It would be best for the church for him to leave. And he never wanted to be accused of taking people's money and running. So he sort of had this standard operating policy of not, you know, kind of 
not taking practical support, paying for his own room and board from the get-go, but there in Philippi, they were so insistent that he finally relented, and he stayed with Lydia, and his whole team stayed there, and she uh, cared for them and watched over them and gave them a lodging and food while they were there in town, and so that's what he means, this practical support of the gospel. They were so so invested in it. They were so moved by the gospel and so transformed by the gospel that they just practically invested in his ministry from the very first day until now. And this letter itself is uh, thanking the, the Philippian church for the gift they had sent him while he's in prison, a gift of money to help pay for his room and board while he's there. And um, they had sent Epaphroditus to minister to his needs. And so there's been a very deep connection a very deep investment of their time, their energy, their money, their resources into Paul's ministry. So that's what he means. I'm so thankful for you because you have been so invested in such a part, participant and such a partner with me in the gospel ministry that I'm a part of. And then he goes on and says in verse 6, for I'm confident of this very thing. I'm you know, another reason I'm thankful for you is I'm, I'm confident that he, meaning God, who began a good work in you will perfect it. The idea of perfect is bring it to completion. It'll reach the goal in you until the day of Christ Jesus, upon the day of Christ Jesus, that God's work in and through and among you is going to be brought to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. I'm, I'm totally confident of that because I can see evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. Well, this leads Paul to really express his heartfelt love and affection for the Philippian church. And so in verses 7 and 8, Paul has really this expression of love for them. He says, it's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Um, even though I'm in prison and even though I haven't seen you for a long time, you have been such a participant with me in the gospel for like the last decade that you're just in my heart and on my mind all the time since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Since at the present time right now in my imprisonment, since in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, I think he's thinking of his whole ministry, his preaching ministry, even his defense and confirmation there in prison. They've sent this gift. They've sent Epaphroditus to care for him. He says, um, and since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all, you, the whole church there in Philippi, you all are partakers of grace with me. And that word partakers is from the same root word as participation in verse 5. And they really have the same sense. You're a sharer in. You're a partner of grace with me. In fact, this word partaker is used outside of the New Testament for business partners. People who have entered into a contractual business agreement and are working together for a common business, a common mission, a common cause. And that's his idea that you're my partner, like my business partner in grace, this grace of ministry that I have been entrusted with. And that seems to be what he's referring to by part, partakers of grace. Doesn't just mean they've experienced grace, Paul's experienced grace. That's true for sure. But I think Paul's thinking of the grace he's been given to preach the gospel, his, his defense and confirmation of the gospel. And they're they're like partners, like business partners, mission partners with him in that. And so he says in verse 8, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ. Man, what a statement of affection and love for them because of their, their just practical, tangible, heartfelt, ongoing, consistent support of his gospel ministry. And I can tell you for a fact 
that uh, missionaries today who have this kind of relationship with a church feel the same way, how much it means to them, the, 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 the messages, the gifts, the sending of people to help out, the relationship, man, it causes this kind of affection that Paul's expressing here for the Philippian church. And so there's Paul's statement of thanksgiving, his prayer of thanksgiving because of their just practical participation in his gospel ministry. Now, verses 9 through 11 then turns to how he's praying for them. Here's Paul in prison, uh, having them on his heart, loving them with, with such depth and affection, and he's praying for them because of that. And verses 9 through 11 record how Paul is praying for the Philippian church. He says this, And this is what I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. And so the specific thing he's asking God to do for the church at Philippi is to continue to grow their love. I'm praying that your love may abound. That word abound has the idea of overflowing, right? I always think of like a champagne bottle where you shake it up, pop the cork, and it pops and the champagne just bubbles out. Paul wants their love to abound. Our love should abound like that, right? Like where it's just bubbling out of us, overflowing out of us, and so that your love may abound still more and more. So he wants, as great as their love is, he wants it to, to continue to overflow, continue to, to increase and, and deepen and overflow more and more in two specific areas. He asks, here's some areas where I want your love to uh, abound more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. In those two areas, now the word translated real knowledge, it's one word in Greek, epigenosis, epigenosco, right? So that word is uh, uh, only used in all of Paul's letters for uh, religious knowledge, spiritual knowledge, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God's truth, the knowledge of God's ways. And so probably that's his idea here is in real knowledge, like in deep, true knowledge of God and God's ways and what matters to God and God's purposes. So I want your love to abound more and more in in deep, true knowledge of God and who he is and what he wants for you and who he's made you and what he wants for the world. So real knowledge and all discernment. And the word translated discernment here is only used here in the New Testament. But it's this idea of insight. It's this idea of moral perception, being able, if you put it in a phrase, being able to discern what's best in a given situation. And so here's what Paul is praying for them. I want, Paul says, I want God to work in you so that your love may overflow more and more in understanding who God is and what God wants for you and how that plays out in the very specific circumstances of your life. And then he goes on and says in verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. I want your love to abound in this kind of knowledge and this kind of discernment so that you can, you can sort out, attest and sort out the things that are excellent, the things that are virtuous, the things that really matter in life. And so as your love grows in knowledge and insight and discernment, you'll be able to sort out in the specific situations of your life what really matters and what's really important in order that you should be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus, in order that you should be genuine, is the idea of sincere. Not just that you should sincerely mean things, but that you should be authentic, genuine, like like purified and refined and and um, have a genuine faith and a genuine walk with God and blameless. Let, 
faultless, above reproach until the day of Christ Jesus, that you should be able to live in this world in a, in a genuine, blameless following of Jesus until the day of Christ Jesus. And verse 11 then ends his prayer by saying, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Just a little technical note there, that phrase fruit of righteousness, a little ambiguous. It could be the fruit which equals righteousness, right? The fruit which is righteousness, or it could be the fruit which righteousness produces. And either one works, and both are true theologically and biblically, but more often than not, phrases like this, the fruit of, and whatever follows, and you know, put the blank in after that, the fruit of is more often than not the fruit that's produced by the thing that follows in that blank. And so you have in various places in the New Testament, you have uh, phrases similar to this that uh, are things like the fruit of the vineyard, the fruit of the womb, the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of light the fruit of the lips, the fruit of the earth. Um, and more often than not, that is what those things produce. The lips produce this fruit. The Spirit produces this fruit. So probably here, when he says, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, it probably means the, the fruit that is produced by the righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ meaning that right relationship with God, that right standing with God, that being declared righteous through our faith in Jesus, um, that, that in and of itself so changes us that it produces a kind of lifestyle that is the kind of fruit he's wanting. And so uh, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, so your love is growing in the knowledge of God and his ways so that you can discern in the specific situations of your life what actually matters and what's really important because, um, because Jesus' very own righteousness is producing fruit in your life to the glory and the praise of God. That's what Paul is praying for the Philippians. Man, and what a beautiful prayer that is. It would be a prayer we could pray for our uh, our kids. It's a prayer we could pray for our small group. It's a prayer we could pray for our church family and model this very prayer, knowing that this is the kind of thing God wants to do in and through his people. So there you have it, Philippians chapter uh, 1, 1 through 11, Paul's introduction and greeting. And let me just offer just uh, briefly a couple thoughts on this. I'm always impressed by um, Paul's thanksgiving and prayers, and I think it would be worth our time to, you know, take Paul's thanksgiving and prayers and say, what what does Paul thank God for? And what does Paul pray for? And let those begin to influence and shape the things we thank God for and the things we pray for. And so you see here, Paul is thanking God for their participation in the gospel. Um, And I'm sure there are people that you can think of who it's like, man, this is what... um, this, they, they have been such a participant. They're so invested in. They give so much. I'm so thankful for that. These are the things that really matter, right? It even challenges us in some regard to be, I want to be that kind of person. I want our church to be that kind of church. Or uh, in his prayer, what does Paul pray for? Well, when you listen to Paul's prayers, more often than not, it's for some sort of spiritual formation, spiritual growth in the church. And it's not that we can't pray for other things, more practical things. And you do see Paul pray for some of those things at times. But 
more often than not, he's praying for their spiritual growth, their spiritual development. Why? Because he knows that matters more than anything else. And again, that should shape some of the things we pray for, just to pray for things like this and people's growth in the knowledge of God and what God wants in their life. And so use Paul's thanksgiving and prayers to really inform and shape your prayers and the things that you thank God for and as you see the things that really matter there. And may Paul's praying and thinking, may they move us to be people more and more of prayer. And so as we read through a text like this, may it encourage us to be people who not only embody the things he's prayed for here, but to be people of prayer like Paul prayed so that uh, we are thanking God for the people in our life. We're thanking God for uh, the things that really matter in life. We're praying for people on a regular basis so that we become people of thanksgiving and prayer.